Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. And Father, we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 5, uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning. John Mark says to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, uh, and immediately when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him uh, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, and he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, uh, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, uh, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising or cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I abjure you by God. Do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out into the country. Uh, now a herd, uh, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, and let us enter them. And so he gave, Jesus gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out. And entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. You may be seated. What a weird story. What a weird story. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, when pigs fly? It actually uh, came out of a figure of speech from a Scottish proverb in the 16th century. Uh, the Scottish proverb said this, if pigs had wings, everything would be possible. 
Uh, it became popularized in American nomenclature uh, in the 18th century, uh, or the 19th century, uh, through the book Alice in Wonderland. The phrase when pigs fly is in Alice in Wonderland. It's a phrase that is used to express that one thinks something will never happen, or one thinks that something is very unlikely, highly unlikely to happen, or that something is completely impossible. So I'll give you some examples just so that you understand this idiom. Uh, One example would be this. Politicians and the news media will tell the truth when pigs fly. (laughs) All right. Amen. When pigs fly. The traffic on Immokalee Road will be light and easy when pigs fly. Amen? My kids will clean their room on their own without me asking when pigs fly. All right, here's one that's going to get closer to home. The dolphins (laughs) will win the Super Bowl in my lifetime when pigs fly. All these things are highly unlikely or impossible to happen. Now, you may not know this, but even according to the Internet, which you believe everything you read on the Internet, September the 9th, mark this in your calendar, is National When Pigs Fly Day. So September the 9th. It's a day, according to the website, that reminds us that sometimes even the seemingly impossible things can happen. Well, listen, we don't need a day to hope for the impossible because we have a king who can do the impossible, and his name is Jesus. And in this story, we just saw pigs fly and Jesus do the impossible. In our section here in chapters 4 and 5, especially chapter 5, we're now into a section of miracles where Jesus reveals and authenticates who he is and what his kingdom is like. In chapter 5, we see something that goes a little bit out of the norm for Mark. Up to this point, Mark is like really, really quick. His ADHD is in high gear, but somehow here in chapter 5, he goes against his usual preference of being brief and concise, and he spends a great amount of time giving details and descriptions. And in his details, you'll notice in this particular story, he spends a lot of time telling us about the problem that this man had. And he also spends time showing us how Jesus had the power to overcome his problem. And here's what you got to get. Every miracle in the Bible starts with a problem. And as I said last week, many of us want to experience miracles in our lives, but we don't want to have to need one. Well, here we have a story where this man was desperately in need of a miracle, and Jesus came and provided one. And so what we are going to see, both as we've come to this point in chapter 4, but in chapter 5, is we're going to see that these chapters, 4 and 5, are about the power of Jesus. They're about the power of his word, And they're about the power of his works. And so this miracle story, these 20 verses we read, uh, has a movement that is built in it. There's a a three three movements. And and these three movements in the story are built around three characters. And so uh, you have the demons, the crowd, and then the formerly demon-possessed man. And so each of these movements, each of these parts of the story, uh, each character responds to Jesus' power differently. So the demons respond differently than the crowds. The crowds respond differently than the former 
demon-possessed man. And so we see that they respond differently. But in each one of these movements, we learn something about Jesus. We learn something about him from their responses. And my hope is this, that in this story, we see Jesus demonstrating his power and ability to do the impossible. And in this story, we see a call for us to trust him to do the impossible and to follow his purposes for our lives. And so let's just walk through this. Number one, we're going to look at the demons. um, And we're going to see this about Jesus. That Jesus has the power over every power in all places. Jesus has power over every power in all places. Verse one, they came to the other side. They just got off of Mr. Toad's wild ride on the, on the sea. It was a very difficult uh, ship ride to get from the Jewish side of the sea to the Gentile side of the sea. But yet Jesus never promised smooth sailing, but he did promise a safe arrival. And so they got to the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, this is uh, Gadara. Uh, in other uh, gospels, it may say the Gadarenes. Uh, just a few months ago, I was at this very place. Uh, in modern day, it's called Umkase in Jordan. In Jesus's day, this was a very large city of about 20,000 people. It was a Gentile region, and this city, um, Gadara or Caesarea, just depends on uh, what, what you want to call it, what, for what language you spoke, was a part of the 10 cities known as the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was once a federation of 10 Greek city-states, um, but those Greek city-states were uh, conquered uh, by the Romans, and so now they are Roman areas. And they were known to be very pagan, they were known to be very dark, very evil, a lot of injustice. And they're also known for their pork eating. They really loved to eat bacon. And so Jesus here crosses from the Jewish side, the kosher side, to the non-kosher side. And what we're seeing is that Jesus' kingdom is not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile. And so Jesus is unleashing his kingdom to the Gentiles. And so as soon as Jesus steps off the boat, the Bible says that immediately he was greeted by a, a guy, and this guy had an unclean spirit, and this guy, uh, his home was in the cemetery. As a matter of fact, there's three different times in this text that we are told that where this guy has been living is in the graveyard. Now, let's just take a side note here, and let's talk about demon possession. You know, we're in this season where a lot of things are, are talking about demons and ghosts, and we have a lot of obsession about these things in our culture. What does it mean to be demon-possessed? Well, I once, I truly believe that demons do possess people today. And I've seen it in other countries. I actually, I really believe that it's real. And so what does it mean to be demon possessed? It means to be under the control or the influence of a demon. And so those who are demon possessed, the purpose of this possession is for, uh, to, for them to be destroyed and to be tormented. Uh, the demon torments its host physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. But let not your heart be troubled. The Bible teaches that believers cannot be demon-possessed. Cannot be demon-possessed. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. 
but yet believers can be attacked and oppressed by demons. And so I believe that there's a lot of spiritual warfare, especially in, in our day. If you go to other countries, a lot of third world countries, you may see more of the demonic. Uh, here in America, the demonic is more subtle because the greatest lie that Satan has ever told, it's been said, is to tell the world he doesn't exist. And so in our Western world, people scoff at the demonic. They scoff at spiritual things. They, they think it all has to be about what you can touch and, and look at and experiment and poke and prod. But I want you to be aware of something and not be ignorant of something. And that is there is an anti-kingdom, a domain of darkness ruled by Satan and his minions. And Satan and his demons are at war with Jesus. And because they are at war with Jesus, they are at war with everyone that Jesus loves. See, we have an enemy. And that enemy has come to steal kill and to destroy. Jesus says, I have come to give them life and life more abundantly. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And so that's why Paul says to the Ephesians, and he says, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What you have to be aware of is that there is an evil behind the evil in the world. So all the problems, the wickedness, the resistance, the injustices that believers face is not just the cruelty of sinful people, but there is a dark, evil power behind them. There is an evil power and there's a real enemy. And what I'm afraid of is that sometimes we just see that the enemy is flesh and blood. And so we will treat other people so cruelly and so so vilely, we, we will see others as our enemy. And I'm afraid that our real enemy is Satan, not each other. And what happens is if we're not careful to recognize that we have an enemy and the enemy is not the other political party, the enemy is not someone who doesn't think or talk like us or dress like us, that the enemy is the devil. And if we don't recognize that, we're going to end up fighting people we should be trying to save. There's an evil behind the evil. And so here this man is. All right, there's so much I want to say, and I didn't say it the first verse, so I'm going to say it now because I don't want to regret it. Satan tried to do everything he can to keep Jesus from doing his mission all throughout, his, all throughout Jesus's earthly ministry. I'm not saying that the storm on the Sea of Galilee was a demonic storm. There are some scholars that do, but see the resistance Jesus had in getting to the other side. I mean, he just got on a boat to go to the other side of the sea, and it was a horrible windstorm. And then as soon as Jesus gets off of that boat, he is met with what? Demonic resistance. And let me just say something. I don't know why I'm saying this, but I'm just going to be obedient. Here's what you got to understand. Sometimes you think, you know, if I'm doing God's will and if I'm doing the things of God, it's going to be easy. No, it's always not. Because often when you are following God and on mission for Jesus and doing his will, you are going to meet the resistance of the devil. And I will say this right now. If you're living life and it's all easy and it's gee whiz, I would be afraid because you are either in collusion with Satan or you're going to be in collision with Satan. And where there's no movement, there's no friction. All right, back to the sermon. That was free. That was all free. 
So here this guy is, and he lived among the tombs, and he couldn't, no one could bind him. All, everybody in town knew this, this guy, and they stayed away from the graveyard. He lived in complete isolation. He cried out day and night, cutting himself. And this had to be a scary scene. In my mind, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. Well, only Jesus, will, only Jesus knows. Is that maybe Jesus is getting off the boat in the middle of the night. So, I mean, like this is a scene from a horror movie here, a scary scene here, that this man who looks like the Incredible Hulk appears and he's, he's stark raving mad. He's screaming and he doesn't, has a, he doesn't have a lot of clothes on. And so when Jesus saw him and he saw Jesus, Jesus knew what was inside of this man, and this man knew who Jesus was. And so uh, this, this guy comes immediately, falls at the feet of Jesus, says to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Why are you here? Why, wh- why are you bothering me? Now, some scholars say here that the demon was trying to get an upper hand on Jesus by saying his name. I don't, you know, maybe, maybe not. But this thought of Jesus, the son of the most high, that's a divine title, As a matter of fact, in the Greco-Roman world, it was a term, a title used by the Romans and the Greeks to distinguish uh, who the chief god of the pantheon of gods and goddesses was. And so uh, the son of the most high God would be the highest of high gods. In Jewish culture and in Jewish nomenclature, it was used to distinguish Yahweh above the other gods. And so what the demon here is saying from the get-go is that there is none like Jesus and there's none higher than Jesus. Now, how did this man know who Jesus was? The answer is the demons, because that's what we've seen in Mark's gospel, that the demons are the only ones who recognize who Jesus is. They confess accurately and truthfully and have a a superior knowledge than even the disciples. Remember, the disciples just think he's some powerful rabbi. They think he's Clark Kent. They don't know that he is Superman. And so the demons say, what are you going to do to us? They knew that they were at the mercy of Jesus. They say to, to Jesus, do not torment me. And so they're begging Jesus that he wouldn't send them uh, to the abyss. They understand it's not their time. They knew that their fate was sealed. Uh, they, were, uh, they were on a sinking boat, uh, but they didn't want to be banished to hell at this moment. Uh, they wanted to still be able to, to have freedom to roam around the country. And so, but what you do notice is that they recognize Jesus' power and authority over them. And so Jesus in verse 9 says, what's your name? It wasn't like he didn't know his name, but Jesus knew the name of the demon. But he asked this so that we would know his name. And this demon's name was Legion. Now, a legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. So perhaps maybe this guy had 6,000 demons inside of him. Wow. You're talking about a lot of personalities. That'd be horrible. And so he begs Jesus, uh, Legion, to not send him out. But he says, send us to the pigs. Now, these demons, demons are parasites and they, they need a host. And so they were looking for an alternative. And so this was good news for the man who was the host, bad news for the pigs, <laughs> And so, verse 15, verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. Now, 
there's so much we could say. I could spend hours talking about this, thinking about this. What is this theologically? We're not going to get into the, 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 the nitty-gritty of that, but here's what the very least you have to understand, that the demons could not do anything unless Jesus gave them permission. As Martin Luther says, the devil is God's devil. So he's, he, he has freedom, but it's on a leash. And so uh, he gives permission. The unclean spirits come out, and they enter into the pigs. It looked like a scene from Ghostbusters or Stranger Things. And so now you have these 6,000 demons in 2,000 pigs, and they are now demon-possessed pigs, and they're rushing down a mountain. They jump off the cliff and drown into the sea. Now, the question is, who, who made the pigs do this? Was it Jesus that made the pigs commit suicide? Was it the demons? Maybe this is just proof the demon's, goal, the demon's goal is to murder, to destroy. Or was it the pigs? Well, we don't know for sure, but here's what I believe. That the pigs would rather die than be deviled ham. I'm here all day. I'm here all day. <laughs> You're welcome. So, the thing that the demons wanted to avoid was the thing that happened to them. Now, there's so many other things we can say. I don't have time to say, but here's what you got. Here's the point Jesus came to the darkest of places and defeated the strongest of forces, and it wasn't even a match. It wasn't even a contest. The contest was no contest because Satan and his forces are no match for Jesus. Jesus doesn't fear them. Just as he slept on the boat, he didn't bat an eye when this dude showed up. And he didn't fear them. They feared him. They trembled before Jesus. Jesus didn't tremble before them. And here's what you have to understand. Because, because they feared him, we don't have to be afraid of them. Because Jesus is bigger and stronger and better than anything we face. And because of his great love, he is for us, not against us. And that's why it says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus has power over every power in all place. Where he may not rule, he overrules. And what does that tell us? That in the great spiritual darknesses of our day, you know, people have different views on Halloween, whether Christians or not. That's between you and your conscience. But there is a great darkness in this time of year. And there are so many things on, on television that are just spiritually dark. There are things on the internet that are spiritually dark. And then we think of this political season, and some of you are worried about if this person gets in, or if that person gets in, or if this group doesn't win, if that group doesn't win, and you are acting as if God is not in control. Let me let you in on something. King Jesus is still on the throne. And he has power over every power in every place. So that's the demons. So that's what we learn number one about Jesus. Number two, the crowds, the crowds. What we learn about Jesus is this, is that Jesus provokes a response to everyone who meets him. And so you have pigs flying at the end of this story. Now we get to verse 14. 
the herdsman. So imagine your job, you, your job for a living is to watch pigs. <laughs> and now you've just seen your herd of 2,000 commit suicide and jump off a cliff into the sea. How are you going to explain that to your boss? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Bob, I just was there standing and all of a sudden, them pigs just took off and jumped right into the sea. <laughs> These herdsmen had to have been out of their minds because this was their livelihood. I mean, the effect of losing 2,000 pigs would have destroyed the local economy and would have caused an economic breakdown in that region, a, a recession like no other, because that's a lot of bacon to lose. It's a lot. And so word spreads, people come because they're hearing about pigs flying and hearing about demons, and so they want to find out what's going on. Now, if you read the text, it kind of seems like, this is me, it kind of seems like they care more about the pigs than the man. But here the man was clothed and in his right mind. He's back to normal, no longer tormented. He's restored. Now, verse 16, you think that there would have been a national, a citywide revival, that there would have been people saying, this is, you know, this is what we should be doing, is worshiping this person. You know, maybe they're thinking in their mind, you know what, maybe this is God's way of saying we shouldn't eat pigs. We should worship Jesus. But instead of worshiping Jesus, they were just afraid the word afraid there is phobos. They, they were Jesus-phobic. And what did they do? They said to Jesus, verse 17, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. They said, leave. They should have asked him to stay, but instead they begged him to leave because they would rather have an army of demons than the Savior of the world. Now, the question is, what were they afraid of? You know what I think? I think they were afraid that if Jesus stayed there much longer, that he may mess with more of their stuff. That he may start digging around. <laughs> and he may start demanding more of their lives. Because, see, Jesus was, was unpredictable. Jesus was dangerous. They loved the comfort of their pigs and their piggy banks. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't mind Jesus getting rid of their demons, but they wanted to hold on to their pigs. Ray Ortland on this text said that Jesus forced on them a choice. His transformation of their lives were the pigs, and they preferred the pigs. Sure, their world was dysfunctional, but it was theirs. It was familiar, and they preferred it undisturbed. You know, people are fine with Jesus as long as he doesn't affect their bottom line. You know, we, we like Jesus the add-on. Uh, we don't like Jesus the inconvenience. And the problem is that Jesus is always an affront to the status quo in our lives. Listen, for Jesus to set you free, he's got to mess you up. <laughs> he just does. He's got to shake up your life and shake out the things that you're clinging to. John Piper on this text said that Jesus demands here a choice. 
Love him and his salvation or love your prosperity and your wealth. And what did they choose? They chose their pigs. Think how ridiculous that is. They chose pigs over the Prince of Peace. They chose pigs over the Savior of the world. They're the crazy ones. Isn't it ironic, don't you think, that you have this man who is crazy is now sane in his right mind, and now you have these people who are once sane are now crazy. <laughs> but that's what happens when you meet Jesus. You, you never remain the same when you first hear of him, when you learn of him. He, he always invokes a response you can't just be neutral. You can't be Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. You can't be indifferent to him. As a matter of fact, John Stott, the theologian, said this. He says, you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ had a moderate reaction to him. No one. There, there are only three reactions to Jesus. They, they, you hate him and want to kill him. You're afraid of him and want to run, uh, run away from him. Or you're absolutely smitten with him and you want to give your whole life to him. It's one of three. So here we see the crowds. They reject Jesus. So you have here the demons that what we learn about Jesus, Jesus has power over every power in all places. And then see the crowds, we see that, that Jesus provokes a response. Are you going to choose Jesus or are you going to cling to something else? And the third is this, the disciple. This man who was once demon-possessed. And what we're going to see about his life is that Jesus has a purpose for everyone he saves. So verse 15, the, the one who had the legion was clothed and in his right mind. He's no longer insane, but he's sane. He's fully restored. He's human again. Those uh, people couldn't tame him, but Jesus transformed him. He set free. Jesus broke the chain of bondage. And he is completely remade. Listen, that should give all of us hope in this room. Because some of you are in the bondage of addiction. Some of you even coming to church, inside there's this angst. Maybe, maybe you, you feel really guilty and you feel shame because of some things you did last night or some things you did this week. And, or, or maybe right now you're, you're kind of feeling itchy. You're feeling like you need to Get another hit, get another high, or, or maybe there's just something in your mind, like there's some sort of bondage like, like you, you struggle with, and you come to church, and you can put a smile on, but, but inside you're so broken, and you're under the bondage of drugs, or alcohol, or pornography, or lust, or worry, or fear, or anger, or greed, or even self-righteousness. Well, the good news is that Jesus can destroy any and every chain that's around you. Ray Orland says there's no temperament Jesus cannot control. There's no madness he cannot soothe, no darkness he cannot illuminate. There's no chain he cannot break. There's no raving he cannot calm. There's no shame he cannot dignify. There's no nakedness that he cannot clothe. There's no legion he cannot command. 
See, Jesus went to the graveyard and he reclaimed what the enemy had stolen and he released this tormented man from the bondage of his soul. So if you've got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaken savior. And if you got chains, he's a chain breaker. And so there this man is. He's clothed and in his right mind. And so, verse 18, Jesus, gets on, Jesus is getting on the boat. He's leaving. Why? Because everybody's told him to leave. They're afraid of him. But this man is now begging Jesus. I want to be with you, right? I mean, if you went through that hell and now you're on the other side of it, wouldn't you want to follow the man who released you? And so he says, I'll go where you go. I'll do what you do. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll be with you, whatever, wherever, however I'm in. I want to be a disciple. And so you would expect that Jesus would say, well, come on. We got room for you on the boat. We'll, we'll move Peter's stuff and John can scoot over. We got, we got a seat for you here. Get on the boat. We'll get you out of this horrible place. But instead, verse 19 says that Jesus said no. I mean, how ironic that the demons ask to go to the pigs and Jesus says yes. The crowd tells Jesus to leave. Jesus says okay. This man asked, begs Jesus to go with him for him to be with him, and Jesus says, no. What? Why? I'm so glad you asked. Can continue reading. Verse 19. Jesus says, go. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, Jesus had a mission for this man's life. See, normally when Jesus healed people, he told them to tell nobody. And they told everybody. Well, here, Jesus tells this man, tell everybody. What is that saying? Jesus had a mission. He had a purpose for this man's transformation. Listen, in my mind, God is so sovereign. Jesus is so omniscient. He knows everything that he may have just went on that boat ride just for that man. And what you see is that this man, whose name we do not know, is the first missionary to the Gentiles in the gospel. The first one outside of Jesus. Jesus says, go to your own people. Jesus was not being uh, uh, racist or being, being uh, closed-minded. This man wanted to go with Jesus. He didn't want to stay in the darkness of the Decapolis, but Jesus had a mission to stay. And sometimes it takes more grace to stay than it does to go. And the reason why is because this man and his testimony was going to reach people that the disciples couldn't reach. He's going to reach people that they couldn't racially or, or ethnically or culturally reach because of the barriers of that day. And here's what you got to understand. If you are saved by the grace of God, if you've been transformed by Jesus, if you are his child, there is a unique purpose on your life. 
And there are unique people that God has strategically put in your life to reach for Jesus that only you can reach. See, there are people out there that I can't reach. There's people out there that the staff can't reach. There's people out there that the deacons can't reach, that the group leaders can't reach. There are people there that only you can reach. And you say, well, what am I supposed to say to them? Well, say what this guy was told to say. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Tell them about the mercy he's had on you. What's mercy? Mercy is God's goodness and love towards those who don't deserve it because of sin in their life. Any of you receive mercy? Amen. I mean, mercy is not a game you play. It is a, it is a gift you receive. The guy's name, we don't know. He used to be known as Legion. But now he is, he's a guy who was once demon-possessed or the guy formerly known as Legion. <laughs> he's got a new name. See, he was hopeless and helpless until Jesus showed up in his life. And this man had a tremendous testimony because he went through a big test. See, he was a part of the evidence of what Jesus can do. So verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him. Notice Jesus says, tell him what the Lord has done. And what does this guy do? He tells him what Jesus has done. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He went from town to town, village to village, person to person, telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And think about this. The people that told Jesus to leave, Jesus left this guy to witness to. See, Jesus didn't save you and I to be silent. All Christians are sent on mission for Jesus. It's not if I'm called, but where and how I'm called. We are not saved so that we can sit sour and soak until we croak. God has saved us so that we would go and tell the world what the Lord has done for us. Has God been kind to you? Has God been good to you? Has God given you what you do not deserve? Then when's the last time you've told somebody what the Lord has done? You know, we don't have a problem telling people what we have done. But when's the last time you tell the people what the Lord has done? And are there people in your life that have no idea what Jesus has done for you? And let me just say something. Believe it or not, there are parents who've never really told their kids all that the Lord has done. There are grandparents that have never told their grandchildren all that the Lord has done. Listen, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where they find bread. Just go and tell. Notice at the end, we're almost done. This guy goes out and everyone marveled. That doesn't mean everyone got saved, but everyone was in awe because they knew what this guy used to be and he ain't what he used to be anymore. See, what seemed to be impossible was possible. See, what's more impressive in this story is not that demon-possessed pigs flew into the sea. What's impressive in this story is that Jesus transformed this once demon-possessed man's life forever. Jesus says that if you follow him, you're going to do greater miracles, greater works. What is a greater work? It's salvation. And let me just let you in on something. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
You know who you used to be because the old has passed away. The new has come. So the question I want to ask you as we end, stay with me, is do you believe that Jesus can save anybody? Do you believe that Jesus can change the worst of us? I think the greatest hindrance that we have in sharing the gospel is our lack of confidence that Jesus can really save the worst of us. Because we say, well, why should I bother? It won't matter. It won't do anything. Because I think even though we may say Jesus saves, and we may say that Jesus can do the impossible, and we may say that Jesus can save the worst of us, when it comes down to it, we don't think he can. So let me end with this. And what I'm about to say, I really have prayed through this week whether to share this or not, but I really feel like it's, it's powerful. You know, I don't know if you're aware, but in the past few months, the name Jeffrey Dahmer has come back into popular culture. This is due to a Netflix show that tells the gruesome story of his murders. I have not watched it, nor will I watch it. And I strongly ask you not to watch it because I truly believe that there are demonic forces attached to shows like that. I really do. I truly do. There's just some things that believers do not need to watch. But he was arrested, Jeffrey Dahmer, in 1991 for being a serial killer and for committing some of the most horrific, horrendous acts of evil. While in prison in Wisconsin, a pastor named Roy Ratcliffe visited Jeffrey every week. Roy shared the gospel with him, and according to Ratliff in his book, Dahmer struggled to grasp the depth of God's grace. After three years of sharing the gospel in 1994, while being interviewed by Stone Phillips, Dahmer said nationally, he says, I've since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of the heavens and the earth. It didn't just happen. I've trusted in him as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that I, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. A lot of people were skeptical of this. A lot of people were very highly, they were very critical of both Pastor Ratliff and of Jeffrey Dahmer. They, they said, how could this be? There's no way. This is the worst of the worst. And yet, Dahmer wanted to be baptized, and so Ratcliffe baptized him in prison, and eight months after his baptism, he was murdered. Some of you maybe are hearing this and thinking of the worst of worst, and you think, how can someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, how can someone that evil, that horrific, that vile, how could they be forgiven? How can they be redeemed? How can they be saved? How can they be delivered? And some of you, sometimes in, in our minds, we, we think, how is it that somebody can be good all of their life and die and go to hell, but someone can be evil like Jeffrey Dahmer, trust Christ as their Savior and go to heaven? That doesn't seem fair. Well, who are you to judge God? Lindsay Knotts, who is a Christian thinker, wrote this about Jeffrey Dahmer and this story. She said, this type of grace is offensive to us because somewhere deep inside of us is a self-righteousness in which we believe we have the moral high ground. We don't believe that Dahmer is deserving of God's grace. And to that, I would say you're absolutely right. He doesn't. She says, but where we get it wrong 
where we get things wrong is that we believe that we do. See, the reality is that what is impossible for us, even to comprehend, is possible for Jesus. The scandal of God's grace is that anyone who realizes their need for Jesus can be saved by Jesus. And to be honest, we don't know the reality of Jeffrey Dahmer's conversion. We won't know that until we get to heaven, whether it was real or not. But here's what this story in the Bible teaches us. This story in the Bible teaches us that there is none too bad that cannot be saved that there is no one too far gone, that there is no one who Jesus cannot save. And so therefore, regardless of what you have done, because Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, there's hope for you. There's hope. Don't run from him, run to him. Come to Jesus and he'll save you because there's none too bad and none too far that he cannot save. See, it is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. And if you're here, no matter what you did last night, no matter what you thought about this morning, no matter how wicked or evil you think you can be, Jesus is powerful, and he's powerful enough to save you. And here's the good news. He loves you enough to save you. That's why we can sing of his love forever. Because when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So if you're here today and you need him, trust him as Savior. And if you're here and you have been transformed by him, then tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will endure forever. We not only thank you for the word, but we thank you for what the word says. And that says that Jesus loves us. This we know because the Bible tells us so. And so, Lord, today I ask that those in this room or those watching online that or those that maybe will hear this message later on podcast, God, that that you will use this message to either do one of two things. One, to bring people to you that need to give their life to you to be saved. Or second, to take those who have been transformed and stir them up to tell everybody about what you've done in their life. God, you are awesome, and you can save. You are mighty to save. So, Lord, today, would you save sinners? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. And just as you are, just where you are, you can give your life to Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church, go out and be the church, have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.